This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Well, hi to all of you wherever you are, because I'm telling you right now, this is one you don't want to miss. Of course, I say something like that just about every week, but I'm sincere, uh, because I love doing the show. I love listening to the uh, guests that we have either in studio or on the phone. In this case, we are speaking on the phone to a a gentleman who has very interesting academic background, uh, Stephen Patterson, George H. Atkinson Professor of Religious and Ethical Studies at Willamette University. We're not talking to George, we're talking to Stephen. He happens to be a historian of religion, and the book that we're talking about is so chock full of history uh, that I really would love to make sure that you had some kind of writing material nearby. Because if all you say on uh, whatever day, whatever hour uh, you, uh, you're listening to the program, if you say, what was that again? What, what did Pat's guest say? No, make notes, particularly because the book, The Forgotten Creed, is filled with material that you're going to take down and remember. The subtitle is Christianity's Original Struggle Against Bigotry, Slavery, and Sexism. That sounds like it came out of today's newspaper, Stephen. Good morning, yeah. That's... um and that's kind of the reason I, I wrote this book, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, I've been, uh, in addition to my academic life, I've been part of churches for, you know, all these years, uh, liberal Protestant churches. And sometimes when we uh, begin to talk about uh, issues like you know, racism or uh, bigotry or sexism, misogyny, those kinds of uh, things, we think that people think that these are just uh, 20, 21st century issues that that uh, liberals have somehow grafted on to the more original Christian message, which has to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus and personal salvation and all of those very important things. But uh, in fact, um, I think historically we can say very clearly that these were issues that were at the heart of the Jesus movement right from the very, very beginning. And um, the forgotten creed that that I'm talking about in this book, uh, I think, shows that that is so. And while the creed has been forgotten, you remind us in so many ways what it consisted of and the many things that it consisted of as they changed over the years and the centuries. So, But let's start with what seems to me to be, if you'll pardon me for using theatrical jargon, the star of the book and the creed and so many of the things that you write about uh, in the Forgotten Creed. I'm talking about Paul. So let's mm-hmm. let's start by by talking about his relationship with the Creed and what it is and what it was. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, we we only we only know about the Creed, um, the Forgotten Creed, because Paul saves it for us, uh, uh, probably more or less inadvertently. Um, he tucks it into one of his letters, namely the Epistle to the Galatians. 
And so that's how we have the creed. And in a moment, I'll sort of maybe unveil it from the pages of Galatians for you. But uh, Paul is, um, I think, a, a much misunderstood figure and a very, very interesting figure. Um, you either love him or you hate him. And uh, you, you probably love him for the wrong reasons and maybe hate him for the wrong <laughs> reasons as well. Yeah. He's a, you know, he's a person. He's, he's just a person. And um, his, his writings in the New Testament are the only, um, the only writings we have that are the actual uh, words of the author, the ostensibly the, the person who actually penned them. We, there, we have, we don't have autographs of Paul's letters, but there are authentic letters of Paul. We don't have any authentic writings of Jesus, for example. Everything we have about Jesus is written by someone else wrapped in years and years of piety. And so he always comes out looking wonderful and perfect and, and ideal. Uh, but Paul, you just have Paul's actual letters, and, and most of them are angry letters. Uh, he's writing in a moment of frustration. And so uh, you get him kind of at his worst. It's like if someone were, were to save your your worst email sent in the middle of the night and, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know enshrine them for all all time. The, and people thousands of years from now could read them and and try to appreciate your genius. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what we have with Paul. So uh, Paul is a person, and sometimes he's very insightful, and sometimes he's very helpful, and sometimes he's kind of a dope. Um, so you, if you can, I think if you can learn to hear good things in Paul and, and, uh, if you're, uh, to put it in a very, uh, Christian way, if you're, if you're able to hear the word of God in Paul, then you're probably able to recognize the word of God in just about anybody. You know, Stephen, as I was reading, as I was reading the book though, over the last couple of days mm-hmm. and, and I, uh, I, I don't in any way intend to fawn over you because of our regular audience knowing that I am a non-fawner. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I really couldn't put it down except for meals. And so as you describe Paul, I suppose probably you could have changed the title of the book to the tweets of Paul because, mm-hmm. because it was mm-hmm. that kind of thing. A friend of ours, longtime friend of just about everybody in Arizona, everybody in baseball, Joe Gargiola. Mm. Joe said uh, one time on the air with me that he had a very, very difficult time trusting Paul because of all of the letters that he wrote to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, all of the letters that he wrote. And the question that that, uh, Joe Gargiola always had was, why didn't anybody ever write back? Why, why was he just doing this constant correspondence and never heard from anybody? That's, funny. That's very funny. Well, Joe, well, Joe wouldn't mind if you used it in future appearances, such as the one that you're making March the 1st. Uh, now, this may be after March the 1st, when a lot of people in different parts of the planet hear it. But uh, you're appearing March the 1st here, Sunday, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Don't be late, Stephen, 4 o'clock in the afternoon at Central Central United Methodist Church on North Central. I'm sure that you'll have either a driver or a GPS. 
you'll find it. Marvelous organization, and it'll be a, uh, a very attentive crowd, mostly because of this program. So you're talking about Paul and his tweets and the fact that there was this broad-ranging response to Paul. Where, where did the controversy about Paul really come from? Oh, I think the controversy about Paul today comes from letters that uh, he did not write that were written uh, many years later in his name, we would say. Uh, some, some people today would say uh, letters that were forged in his name, uh, which take very uh, offensive stands by our lights uh, on the question of uh, women in the church and the status of women in general, also on slavery. Uh, the voice of that person who was not Paul, say in First and Second Timothy and Titus, is uh, very approving of slavery and tells slaves to be obedient, tells women to be submissive to their husbands and not to speak and not to have authority over men and those kinds of things. Uh, those those ideas, of course, came to shape the the churches and and by extension Western civilization for. Uh, you know, almost two millennia before people finally realized that, uh, look, this is this is not really Paul. Uh, this is a, a later forger. And um, not that it's not, it, these texts are still in the Bible, so people still pay attention to them. But, but uh, in many churches which turned away from those ideas, uh, we were at least <laughs> assured that uh, there's some ambiguity about uh, this in the in the Bible itself. If they're but forgeries, they'll yeah. excuse me for jumping in, but I, I'm yeah, I'm no, curious please. if they are forgeries, why are they still in the Bible? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm wait, not, wait a minute. I'm, Hold on, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I introduced Stephen Patterson as a professor of religious and ethical studies at Willamette University. And I want to tell you, I would sign up for any of your classes just on the basis of what you just said. I don't know. <laughs> I've never heard a professor say that in my life. Well, I have to say it a lot. And I have to say it a lot, I'm afraid, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> now, the, the question of the canon and how it was formed and how the Bible came to be is a very long and complicated question. People think that it, you know, was a group of old men back in hoary antiquity giving thumbs up, thumbs down to every book, and and uh, that's just never really happened. What uh, was it? What was it in truth? Well, in truth, it was a long uh, development of sort of history and custom, and what people liked, and what they decided to save by copying again when the old copy was eaten by worms, and and so. Uh, texts that were used and, and people that, that people liked, they saved, and texts that they didn't use and didn't like, they didn't, they didn't copy again. They just disappeared. And so the, the, the actual first conciliar decision, church-wide decision on the canon of Scripture, the whole canon of Scripture, was the Council of Trent in 1547. People are often surprised by that. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, no, I'm stunned, and I've been yeah. doing this program for a long time, and I've been going to church an even longer time. Never have I ever heard that in my life. I know about uh, the Gospels that didn't wind up making the cut, uh, at least some of them, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, uh, and uh, I, but I don't know what the content of most of those things were. And I, I especially am curious 
as to why they didn't make the cut. Yeah, and there, you know, there are, we can talk about reasons why particular texts did not have the, a wide appeal. <clears throat> Some of the texts that are not in the Bible that we think of as uh, excluded were you know, actually, you know, some of them were very esoteric texts and very difficult to understand. So uh, people just did not relate to them very well, and so they, they don't use them. They don't. They don't copy them. And the texts that we have in the Bible, many of them are written in the aftermath of the of a of a great war that affected everybody involved in the Jesus movement. Uh, that we call it the Jewish War, but it's kind of a war of rebellion against Rome. And so uh, the the themes of of suffering and faithfulness and uh, persecution and struggle, those themes that come out so much in Christian scripture were themes that um, people who were following Jesus at the time, who were all dissidents in the Roman Empire, these were themes that they all related to very much. And so you can kind of see them grad, you know, uh, uh, using texts that that spoke to their experience uh, very much. Uh, of course, that is not to say that those texts that spoke to their experience would speak to everyone's experience in the whole history of Christianity. And so that's why it's important to open up our investigations, include other and include other texts from the period that we might think of as scripture. As and well, we'll, we'll have to do we'll have to do another seventeen shows with you. Just on that subject, uh, you know, as you're, as you're talking about the conflict of that time, too, and in reading your book, it is surprising that it isn't called the War of Genitalia, uh, because mm. circumcision continues to be an ongoing discussion point, uh, and that surprised me. Yeah, sex and sexuality and, and um, uh, gender and gender identity are... Uh, themes that uh, turned out to be uh, quite common in the in this in this book in this this problem, um, and that that was a little surprising to me too. It's something I really discovered as I got into it uh, a little bit more. Uh, so the, the creed, I suppose I should say, the the creed itself, uh, which is tucked into the uh, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, originally uh, went something like this. Um, it started out something like, you are all children of God. Uh, and then come three little phrases. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female. And then it concludes with, for you are all one. And that is arguably the very first uh, Christian creed. And quite remarkably, I would say, um, it doesn't say anything really about uh, God or Jesus or salvation, any of the things that you would expect to find in a creed, it's all about uh, uh, identity. It's all about the identity of the people who followed Jesus and what they think, what they thought they were committing to uh, when they did that. And these ideas, there is no Jew or Greek, that's, that's to say that ethnicity is not going to matter. There is no slave or free, that is to say class is not going to matter. There is no male and female which is to say there is a gender is not going to matter. These are the the claims they are making. And um, so so it, gender is um, something that is very important in the creed. And, and then identity 
it happens that Jewish identity, uh, Jewish, there is no Jew or Greek, that, that divide kind of manifests itself in antiquity in terms of uh, circumcision. Were you circumcised or not? And a lot of what Paul argues in Galatians and in Romans, these texts that we use all the time, uh, really is about uh, the, the question of circumcision and whether that Gentiles would have to be circumcised in order to be part of the Jesus movement. So that's why it comes up so much. Uh, the uh, the title of the book, I should remind everybody, by the way, uh, Stephen Patterson's The Forgotten Creed, again subtitled Christianity's Original Struggle Against Bigotry, Slavery, and Sexism. And, and it was a struggle that went on forever. But what I want to know more than anything at the beginning of this program, as we continue to examine the issues in kind of an overview, why was the creed forgotten? Oh, well, I, I guess you'd have to say that what it was claiming uh, was ultimately too difficult for most people to, to embrace. Uh, the idea that that human beings could live without dividing ourselves into tribes, I guess, groups, um, us and them, uh, us and them, us based on ethnicity or class or gender. This idea was was too difficult for most people. And in the beginning, you can see uh, people like Paul really trying to embrace the idea that we shouldn't divide ourselves in terms of ethnicity. That was his main concern, actually, in, in his life. Uh, you can find people really trying to dedicate themselves to the um, eradication of slavery, at least the amelioration of its effects. But uh, And you can find especially uh, people in the churches that are concerned to uh, treat men and women completely equally and even to develop a kind of androgynous identity in some places. Um, you can see all that at the very beginning, but by the end of the first century, into the second century, um, most of that enthusiasm, most of that fervor has given way to a more conventional view, and the creed was forgotten. One of the lines out of your book, in fact, it's early on in the introduction, that uh, really struck me to the degree that I wrote it down separately. And that is your contention that Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in American life. What a, yeah. what a dramatic line that will cause people not only consternation but confusion. Tell me what you meant by it. Well, and that's a, you know that line has been uttered by a lot of different people and attributed to many different people. I attributed it to Mar uh, to to Malcolm X, I think, the book, and I think that's who originally uh, said it. And he meant it, of course, as a as a criticism of Christianity. Yes, and that we're not living up to our, our to our ideals, and and that is uh, certainly true. And that's the way I meant it too. That uh, uh, churches really are not uh, living up to the ideals uh, they would claim. And and it's not for lack of trying. I mean, uh, probably it is for lack of trying in the right way. But um, 
for all of our good intentions, um, religion still remains a very divisive force among us. And I think that's probably always going to be true until we recognize that the heart of our religion isn't something else. It's not something besides um, solidarity. The heart of our religious tradition is solidarity. And if we're failing at that, then we're really failing the Jesus tradition. Uh, We shouldn't be preaching something else and trying for solidarity on the side. Um, We should be trying for solidarity uh, all the time, and that should be central to our efforts. And if we find a way to, to, to achieve that, then we will really have understood what Jesus was talking about and, and what Paul was talking about, for that matter. Is that the fault of the hierarchy of all of the mainstream churches? Um, I don't know. Uh, I would not say it's really the hierarchy. I'd say it's all of us. You know, it's it's a human problem. It's not it's not a leadership problem. It's a human problem. And uh, we all think of ourselves in terms of us and them. We all form our identity uh, by saying who we are not, who we're not going to be. And uh, we just have to stop doing that. And, of course, it would be nice if we had leaders that realized that and could help us see it. <laughs> but it's not really its not really a leadership problem. Um, you know, I'm a part of the United Church of Christ, and, and our general minister and president, uh, John Dorhauer, has taught me lots and lots of things about this, uh, about this issue. And so it's really not a, a leadership problem. It's, it's a human problem. We all struggle with it. You make an interesting statistical point about the difference in numbers between the United Church of Christ and Mormonism. Do that now. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't recall how many Mormons there are in, in the United States now, but there's something like seven or eight million of them, I think, and, and uh, the United Church of Christ, which is the original Church of the Pilgrims. Yes. Uh, is now... Uh, fewer than a million in in number, and that's true of all the older mainline traditional Protestant denominations. The the Presbyterians are down to oh just over a million now. The uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ is well under a million now. Um, it's so these these old what we call liberal Protestant denominations, where uh, you know you would expect to find a, the struggle against. Sexism and uh, and bigotry still continuing on. They have really declined in significance, uh, at least by any measure of numbers. And that's not to say that the the Mormons are uh, somehow the opposite of that. I don't mean to impugn them at all, but uh, I think people think of the Mormon churches uh, more of a niche uh, culturally than, say, uh, mainline Protestantism. But um, it's just to say that that the influence of these liberal denominations has really dwindled to uh, really next to nothing in our in our culture. We're not really part of the cultural conversation anymore. Though slavery uh, was not and is not uh, something that is exclusively an American sin, uh, yeah. it is uh, it is certainly at least these days considered to be. Uh, that which cannot be tolerated. But what is the position uh, that you have studied and researched historically, the Bible's position on slavery? Yeah. Well, 
as far, you know, the, the only place where slavery is really disputed uh, in the Bible is uh, in this creed. Uh, there is no slave or free. And, of course, that's a somewhat ambiguous statement that can be read a number of ways. You know, people eventually read it, well, you might be a slave, but just don't don't worry about it. Uh, be happy anyway, you know, because in the Lord, there is no slave or free. Uh, so those were not, I assume, not slaves saying that. But um, So over the years, the, the church's position on slavery was always that uh, it's part of the divine order and that slaves should be obedient to their matters, masters and be part of the part of the divine order. And the, and the church never really repudiated that until uh, much, much later, until in, in Protestant churches, of course, that wasn't until the 18th century in Europe and the 19th century in America, where Protestant churches finally woke up and realized that um, this is this was just just wrong. It's in the Bible, but it's it's, it's just wrong. And in America, um, slavery was a particularly uh, was long lived and and particularly uh, powerful in our in our identity formation because freedom was such a strong element uh, in our identity formation. And and as the great uh, historian of slavery, Orlando Patterson, pointed out, you know. Freedom really doesn't exist as a human concept until slavery exists as a human concept. They they go together. And in many ways, Americans, white Americans, define themselves as free uh, because they could point to uh, other persons in their company who were not free, slaves. And so this, this, this particular uh, diet, there is no slave or free, I think is it seems obvious now, but but for Americans in particular, uh, it was it would be hard to adjust to that because it means that our identity is not somehow grounded in freedom as opposed to slavery, but something else. There's something else that that makes us fundamentally human, uh, and that something else, of course, in the Christian gospel is love and care and concern and mercy and grace. Those kinds of things that we associate, those those qualities we associate with God. Um, so this was a hard one for us, and um, in, in a sense, we still live with that legacy. I think we're talking with Stephen J. Patterson, who is the author among uh, his many books, nine at this point, um, the author of the book that we're talking about now. The Forgotten Creed. When was this first available, Stephen? Uh, the book, you mean? Uh, yes. The Forgotten Creed? Uh, it came out in 2018. Yes. So Yes, not the creed itself. Now. Uh, no, not the creed itself, <laughs> but the book about the creed. The Forgotten Creed, Christianity's Original Struggle Against Bigotry, Slavery, and Sexism. And if you are, as I think many of you probably may be, particularly here at the location from whence comes the show every week, The God Show, Phoenix, Arizona. Stephen Patterson is appearing Sunday, the 1st of March, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Central United Methodist Church, 1875 North Central Avenue. If you are listening right now in Guam, I would suggest that you make arrangements 
as soon as possible to attend. Uh, Stephen Patterson, The Forgotten Creed. In the book, by the way, you use an intriguing phrase. Uh, you use many intriguing phrases. The one I want to concentrate on for a moment is the one that you use a chapter heading, The Oldest Cliché. Define that. Mm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the creed, the, this, the central part of the creed is there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male and female. And it turns out that there was in uh, Greco-Roman antiquity a kind of cliche um, that uh, went something like this. Um, I thank the gods every day that I was born a Greek and not a barbarian, <laughs> that I was born free and not a slave, that I was born a man and not a woman. And there are various versions of it. Some are ones attributed to Socrates, one to Thales. Um, uh, there's a Jewish version of it that people often cite when they're talking about this creed in, in Paul's letters. But it's important to realize it wasn't a Jewish cliche. It was it was a it was a cultural cliche from the ancient world. And the 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 whoever wrote the creed, this anonymous person uh, who wrote the creed, had that cliche in mind. I'm, is certain of it, and 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 constructed the creed to turn that cliche on its head. I thank God every day that I was born a Greek and not a barbarian. There there is no Greek and barbarian. There is no Jew or Greek. I thank God every day I was born free and not a slave. There is no slave or free. You see, and so he's he's turning the this cliche on its head and making this as. I guess a stark uh, uh, a countercultural claim as uh, can be made uh, in in the ancient world. That's the meaning of the, the chapter. Title. But within the cliche and within your book, the Forgotten Creed, also uh, there's so much explanation of bias. Then uh, Greeks against Romans, Romans against Greeks. Uh, yeah. Jews against Gentiles, Gentiles against Jews. Um, one of the most interesting things to me is the amount of gender bias there was on so many different levels in so many different societies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and th this is something I guess that's a little bit uh, disputed when you look at antiquity. Some people think now that... Um, Maybe women had more uh, rights than we think they would have had, and and that's probably true in pockets. But uh, by and large, and in general, uh, the ancient world is not a good place for women. Um, not that the modern world always is, but the ancient world it really wasn't. And, um, and there's just so many things about women's status in the ancient world. Um, women normally couldn't own property. Women normally were under the, the authority of their fathers until they were married, and then they were under the authority of their husbands. Uh, they were, they they just didn't have the kind of agency you would expect uh, a person to have uh, in the human community, and, and that's just a fact. So um, to say there is no male and female was, yeah, truly a dramatic, a dramatic statement. And followers of Jesus made fairly dramatic gestures in the beginning, at least, 
to commit to that idea. Um, we we know, for example, from the Gospel of Matthew that there were probably men in these early communities who uh, emasculated themselves, that is, castrated themselves, in order to be more androgynous, to take a step toward femininity and sort of live out this special calling as uh, a eunuch for the kingdom of God. This is how Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew puts it. Um, in Paul's letters, we know we can see men and women engaging in a kind of liturgical gender-bending exercise, praying and prophesying in a way that you can't tell the men from the women. And uh, this is troubling to Paul. He doesn't like it. He thinks it's odd and strange and just tells him not to do it because nobody else is doing it. But it, that doesn't mean that they weren't doing it. They they were. They were fully committed to this idea that there is no male and female. And in Paul's in those early communities that Paul founded, we can see that in terms of leadership and authority, structure, that women were in fact leaders in those communities, that there were in fact women apostles in the very beginning of the Christian movement. And um, uh, that's just be, that's a result of, of the thinking that, that goes into this creed, that there is no male and female. In Christ, there is no male and female. One of the most disturbing passages of this part of your book regarding the difference in the acceptance of uh, equality uh, between the genders uh, was that when a father gave his daughter into marriage, usually to a much older person, a much older man, uh, that the woman was very, very young, hardly a woman, more often a girl, and uh, then childbirth began almost immediately, and uh, much to the horror of the reader of your book, The Forgotten Creed, often manifested itself in the death of the girl out of childbirth and the fact that the the average age of those women as a result of giving birth so, so often and in those days without the benefit of sophisticated medical help, uh, they, uh, they were very, very young when they died. Yeah, yeah, women lived a lot, on average, um, many years less than men, and that's probably mostly due, due to childbirth. Uh, it was uh, arguably the leading cause of death for women. And, you know, frankly, uh, it's this is still true. Uh, and uh, a good part of the world today, uh, uh, marriage is something that happens to women when they are very young. And um, childbirth is probably the most life-threatening um, situation for women still in many parts of the world. So uh, this is something we're still uh, living with today. Nationalism and xenophobia didn't really just exist uh, between the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, There was um, a great deal of prejudice uh, that was directed at other cultures, at least according to your book, The Forgotten Creed. Yeah, and everybody seemed to have 
uh, one particular group they were uh, loathsome of. Uh, the Romans were particularly fearful of and hated the Gauls. Uh, uh, Greeks were particularly fearful of and hated the Persians and became <laughs> stereotypes. And, uh, you know, uh, Jews were particularly loathsome of, of Greeks and thought of them as very uh, degenerate. And so everybody had their favorite, uh, favorite opposite to hate and to over, over against which really to define themselves. And that's what this is about. It's about about self-definition. But we still have those We're groups not. today. Sure. Every, well, that's that's how we define ourselves today, you know. Um, but it isn't, a, but it, it doesn't seem to be any uh, uh, any more sophisticated uh, that kind of, uh, of nationalism. Uh, it seems to, just as it was then so many centuries ago, almost always yeah. directed at one other group. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we can't really, we're sort of divided today, though. We can't decide if our, our real enemies are the Russians or uh, the Chinese, you know. <laughs> or don't forget those Mexicans coming up because... Oh, right, oh. exactly. There's a whole whole column of, of Mexicans <laughs> or, or immigrants, just general immigrants, a whole column of them marching towards our border. No, this is just such an age-old um, uh, stupidity that it just never changes. It never changes. Yeah, as you folks are making notes, by the way, please don't misunderstand. Uh, our guest, Stephen Patterson, did not say general immigrant. It was not a military title. Uh, he was just talking about general lowercase, right, Stephen? Yes, yeah, I'm just <laughs> speaking in... in stereotypes here. That, I didn't uh, want anybody in our audience yeah. to think in terms of immigrants now having a group of high-ranking officers, uh, the general uh, yes. immigrant that is in charge of the phalanx. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so much of this is about Paul, and so much is it about political leadership uh, in the book. Uh, but it seems as if in those days, anyway, uh, with the exception of those immediately in his sphere, Jesus wasn't a big deal. You know, that's probably true. Uh, Jesus was, so far as we can tell, Jesus was a, a peasant from a relatively small place in a small corner of the world. And um, he's not the kind of person that anybody then or now would really notice or take account of and um because we have you know what what survives about jesus are gospels that are really works that praise him and also give you the the sense of sort of the omniscient narrator watching these events from on high we have the idea that you know jesus was a, a big sensation that that the whole world was watching these events as they unfold, and um, that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the Jesus movement was originally a very small and relatively inconsequential movement, and no one noticed it for many, many years. It's really about 100 years until the Jesus movement appears anywhere on the 
in ancient literature outside mm. of Christianity. Fascinating. And then it's because, uh, you know, a, a governor in, in Asia Minor has noticed them and doesn't know who they are and wants to, is asking around, <laughs> has anybody heard of these people? And so that's, you know, that's the middle of the second century. That's 100 years in. So it takes a long time for any of this to to catch on and, and make an impact. And, and and when it finally did, then the surrounding culture that really has already made quite an impact on it. It's not that the Jesus movement has survived sort of unchanged for 100 years and then emerges full-blown on, on the world stage. Uh, by the time people actually notice it, it's already been shaped and formed a great deal by the culture in which it... Historically yeah. remarkable material uh, that you you bring to us, some of us for the first time, hearing the realities of those times, those giants of the faith, Stephen Patterson bringing them to his classroom as a professor of religious and ethical studies at Willamette University in Oregon. Uh, uh, Paul, Paul recognizing Jesus, did Jesus know Paul? No. Um, Jesus and Paul didn't know each other as people, um, although they, they lived about the same time. Uh, Paul never met Jesus. Um, we don't know if he would have liked him or not if he if he had met him. Um, maybe not. Um, or vice versa, with, whether Jesus would have liked Paul, who knows. Uh, but their paths just never crossed. And this is the peculiar thing about Paul. He, he encounters the followers of Jesus after Jesus has died and doesn't like them and thinks they ought to be uh, put out of business, and so apparently did everything he could to try and do that. Um, but then, it's, at some point, uh, he has this kind of ecstatic religious experience. Tell us about um, that. But tell us about that, because that is kind of one of the dramatic Paul stories that most of us know, even if we don't know anything else. Tell us about that yeah. moment. Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could tell you a lot more, but... but Unfortunately, Paul himself is very, very cryptic about it. He only says this. He says, uh, when God chose to reveal his son in me, that's what he says. Uh, and otherwise, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. And now, usually people translate that when God chose to reveal his son to me, because they're thinking of the scene in Acts where Paul encounters a bright light and is thrown from his horse and he's, he's blinded and, and uh, has to uh, be led into to the city to, to um, encounter the Jesus movement there and be converted. And, but see, all of that is written by the author of Acts, who was probably writing it uh, at least uh, 60 years later, maybe as, as much as 100 years later. And so it's all very much a kind of legendary account uh, about Paul. But Paul himself never mentions any of that. He just says, one day, God chose to reveal his son in me. He says that, in me. And from then on, he talks then about the Spirit of Christ being in him. 
as though as though Christ has possessed him, as if Christ is a kind of spiritual presence that has taken him over and is now directing his life. And that's really how I think he understands his relationship with with Jesus. It's as a kind of almost foreign spirit that is guiding him along and has taken control of him. And it's all very mysterious. Paul himself says he, he spoke in tongues, that he prophesied, so he was given to you know, ecstatic experiences of that nature. He probably would have been quite an unusual person by our lights. Um, not a person you could sit down and have a beer with. He would, you know, he just was a very unusual uh, religious person, if you will. But um, he doesn't say he was converted. He says he was called, uh, which is which is to say, what happened to him he understood to be well within the bounds and the the understanding of his own religious tradition, the Jewish tradition. God was calling him to do something new. And he was doing it through this the spirit of a of a Jewish prophet that he thought was uh, originally what he, which he, whom he thought was quite mistaken, and he did cha- so he changed his mind about Jesus, but he didn't change religions. He didn't have a conversion experience. He just uh, understood that God was calling him to something new. So many times uh, when we talk about violence against Jews. Uh, against large numbers of Jews, a general uh, attitude uh, that uh, manifests itself in violence. Um, We so often reflect, of course, on the Holocaust and the Hitler years, but the violence against Jews that you write about in the Forgotten Creed is stunning. Yeah, and it all there's a lot of um, anti-Jewish violence that precedes the advent of of uh, Gentile Christianity, and that's something important to to know. It's it's part of the ethnic conflicts of the ancient world, and um, it shaped the world of Paul, and very I think very dramatically. Um, this is something people generally don't understand about Paul. That first of all. He was pri- he was not primarily concerned with the question of how you and I, miserable sinners though we are, might be saved. He was concerned with how uh, the Jesus movement could get Gentiles to become part of it. And in order to do that, he thought that the best thing to do would be to waive the requirement of the of observing the Jewish law, especially circumcision. And but he was so passionate about getting Gentiles to join the Jesus movement because he lived in a world in which Jews and Gentiles hated each other. That wasn't true across the whole Roman Empire, but in the cities where Paul was, it was true, especially Antioch. And that city was riven by uh, Jewish Greek ethnic strife uh, right at the about the time Paul was there. And I think one of Paul's real insights about the Jesus movement, one in his insights about Jesus was the man who said, uh, you must not just love your neighbors, you must also love your enemies. That, that that insight was the key to healing the ethnic divisions and violence in that community where he lived. And I think that's one of the appeals of the Jesus movement to Paul, that it could 
really address the ethnic strife that was tearing his world apart. It's been said, in fact, by uh, Pamela Eisenbaum uh, in uh, the uh, acknowledgement of her enthusiasm uh, about your book, uh, she is listed as the author of Paul Was Not a Christian. Uh, is that your position? Yeah, sure. That's that's uh, it's absolutely true that um, Paul did not, just like Jesus did not found a new religion, Paul himself did not understand himself to be founding a new religion. He was Jewish, and most of what he says about Jesus and about God can be understood within the context of first century Judaism very clearly. Uh, uh, Pamela Eisenbaum's book, Paul Was Not a Christian, was is maybe the best book you could read about Paul. Mm. It's really a wonderful, wonderful book and very clearly written. And Pam is, uh, is uh, a, a Jew. She's Jewish and she's spent her life studying Paul and also uh, teaching in a Christian seminary. She teaches at a Methodist seminary in Denver called Iliff Theological Seminary. So uh, her insights about Paul are really, uh, yeah, nothing short of amazing. Um, so I would recommend. Well, Paul was uh, not a let us anybody. let us assume that your book is nearly as good as Pamela Eisenbaum's. <laughs> it is very very close. And then everybody who shows up March the first, Sunday at four o'clock at Central United Methodist Church on North Central Avenue here in Phoenix, will be able to make uh, your own, uh, you can draw your own conclusions then about the quality of Stephen Patterson's book and his oratory skills. What's the subject going to be March the 1st? Well, it'll be the, the Forgotten Creed. Um, I'll go kind of walk through the how we discovered it and how how it emerges from the pages of Paul's letters and then a little bit about each of the um each of the things the creed talks about uh, ethnicity and antiquity and and slavery and antiquity and of course gender and gender identity in antiquity and I'll spend a little more time on that because I think that the most surprises uh for people today are in that area I mean everybody's I assume everybody thinks that the ancient world was riven ethnically like it is today and that that slavery was a bad thing. Uh, but I don't think people really understand the extent to which uh, followers of Jesus took on the gender question and were uh, really experimenting with gender and gender identity and gender bending. Uh, these are things that you know, it kind of took me by surprise, and I think they generally take people by surprise. This is something we especially think of as a 20th century or even a 21st century concern. Uh, but uh, it's really surprising how much ancient people thought about these things, and the followers of Jesus were really uh, thinking about them too. What did Jesus and his followers say about slavery, if anything? Um, nothing as far as we can tell. Jesus himself seems to have said nothing about slavery. And um, it's a little puzzling. Um, you know, it, it's, it was clearly one of the, chief evils of his world and um and yet he seems he just hasn't doesn't comment on it and uh, why that is is anyone's guess uh, my guess is that jesus himself 
came from a status in his culture that was so marginal that um, slavery would not have stood out as uh, as all that different from his own status. You know, he wasn't he 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 didn't look upon slaves from on high and say, you know, you aren't you aren't you unfortunate to, to be slaves. He looked at them probably horizontally and saw them in the same situation that, that he was in, that is a very dehumanizing and dehumanized position. And his general message that 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 no matter what the world tells you you are, you are a child of God is something he would have said to slaves as well. But we don't have him on record saying that. Uh, all we have is this creed, uh, which was composed pretty soon after the life of Jesus, uh, maybe the earliest creed we have, and whoever wrote it thought that the meaning of Jesus' message was there is no slave or free. Stephen um, Patterson says the title of the book is The Forgotten Creed, and we're almost out of time. Please remind our audience what the words of that creed actually were. Right. The creed originally probably read something like this. You are all children of God. Literally, it says sons of God, but that's a phrase you find in the New Testament. Sometimes it's children of God, sometimes it's sons of God. But you are all children of God. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female, for you are all one. And the creed, by the way, does not say, for you are all the same. It doesn't say that. And that wouldn't be true, because people aren't all the same. But it says that you are all one, which is to say, human solidarity is everything. And, and in spite of differences, in spite of the fact that we all are unique, we can still be in solidarity with one another. And you don't have to be the same in order to stand together and to live together. And after all of your years of research in the world of academia, with one minute left, let me ask you to theorize, just from the mind and experience of Stephen Patterson, even today, can we all truly be children of God? It's always a possibility. It's always there. It's always the, the ideal yeah, and and yes, of course, we can. Will we? Uh, oh, I, I don't want to expose my cynicism too clearly. <laughs> I, I I hope. I hope. I, I live in hope. We always we have to live in hope. The name of the book is The Forgotten Creed. Uh, the name of the author is Stephen Patterson. And the date when you can spend some time with Stephen is March the 1st, Sunday, 4 o'clock in the afternoon at Central United Methodist Church here in Phoenix, Arizona. It's on Central Avenue, and we are at an address called The Star Worldwide Network. We are The God Show.